Well, since you can't refrain from running commentary <laughs> while I'm speaking, then you have to go to your room. <laughs> Welcome to that showbiz baby. So today we're talking about missionary work, which is a very complicated subject, but we're going to talk about it. Kate's never done any missionary work. I kind of like did some half-heartedly. I was like, yeah, all right. (laughs) Anyways, we'll get into that. But I, yeah, have lots of friends who have been in the quote unquote mission field. And it's a it's an interesting topic for sure. I actually did have to do research for this episode, which was like so unhinged. <laughs> I was like, I can't believe I'm reading literal books right now. <laughs> Literally. Literally, I read books. So the main books we're going to be quoting from today are The Very Worst Missionary, A Memoir or Whatever by Jamie Wright. And then the other book is called The Gospel of Trees. And this is by Apricot Irving. And it's set in Haiti. Her father was a um, horticulturalist, I guess, or a botanist. He tried to do something with trees over in Haiti and it didn't work. <laughs> I'm going to be quoting quite extensively from those books. This is actually just an abbreviated audiobook of both those books. We're also going to be listening to a few audio clips that my dear friends, Michael and Amanda, sent in. Mike and Amanda used to be employed in the missions field. I actually met Mike because he was one of the leaders on the first missions trip that I ever went on with Teen Missions International. And I met Amanda because they were sworn lovers also known as husband and wife. Obviously, I'm low-key obsessed with his wife, Amanda, and we stay in touch regularly by sending each other Marco Polos. So Mike and Amanda are still involved in ministry work, and they are based in, how do you say it? Leahy? Lehigh? 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 Acres, Florida. They're in Florida. And they have seven children, all boys. (laughs) So as you might suspect, there are a lot of political and theological differences between me and my friends, but we really have this deep care and trust and respect for each other that sort of allows us to engage in these kinds of touchier subjects. So I just did want to get their perspective on this thing because it's been such a big part of their lives. And also because I just did want to hear like the other side, but from someone who I trust and so from someone who I believe is smart as well as kind. So sit back and enjoy. So sit back and enjoy. Uh, So this first quote is from the Gospel of Trees. And take it away, Kate. (laughs) Despite our assumptions, it seemed increasingly clear that the story did not really revolve around us. We had leaped so quickly into old, tired roles, but we had misread the cues or a need to see ourselves as benefactors without whom the Haitians impoverished and hopeless were doomed to live in darkness was outdated at best. Why would Haitian missionaries and entrepreneurs settle for menial entry-level jobs in a missionary hierarchy that would never let them rise to the level of their giftedness? 
We too were responsible for this unraveling. We had all participated, my father with his gospel of trees, the Hodges families, unswerving allegiance to the hospital, so many saviors ready to die for their causes. Also, it was the same. We placed ourselves like heroes at the center of the story, as if it was our destiny to save Haiti. What we couldn't seem to understand was that Haiti needed our respect, not another failed rescued mission. This quote is also from the Gospel of Trees. The missionaries I had grown up with were neither marauders nor saints. Haiti was neither savage nor noble. The truth was far more complicated. And then this next quote is from The Very Worst Missionary Memoir. I wanted to talk about the questions and doubts I was having, but I didn't know how people would respond if I started to pick away at the accepted narrative that all missions are good missions and all missionaries are good missionaries. (laughs) Could I share what I had learned during my first year and a half in Costa Rica? That, nope, it's not enough just to show up ignorant and ill-prepared and expect God to work miracles. Could I say something about the alarming number of weirdos, jackasses, and dipshits out there that were also called missionaries? I just wasn't sure what would happen if I publicly suggested that maybe God and the world deserved so much better. And this last quote is from a book called The Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. And the quote is, No other continent has endured such an unspeakably bizarre combination of foreign thievery and foreign goodwill. So the next thing that we want to touch on is sort of the Bible verses that missionary work is based on. So there was three of them that I was like, yeah, these are like the main ones. If you've ever heard like a sermon about missionary work or if you've ever gone to any kind of like workshop or different things where missionary work is being discussed, usually these verses are used. And the first one is from Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The second one is from Romans 10, 14. But how can they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone to preach? And then the last one is from Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said, send me. There's also a Bible verse about like the, what is it? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Something like that. Yes. That's also one that gets used, I would say. And so I also wanted to do a couple of definitions before we dive into our wider discourse here. So the first is the term white saviorism. So white saviorism is the belief among a group of white people that it's their responsibility to support and uplift communities of color in their own country or another because the people of color lack the resources to do it themselves. Um, Resources, willpower, and intelligence to do it themselves. White saviors often speak passionately about their desire to quote-unquote do the right thing yet their actions usually involve very little input from the people they're attempting to help. White saviorism tends to emphasize inequality because it continues to center the actions of white people while ignoring or even invalidating the experiences of those they're claiming to help. Often when white saviorism is discussed, it's examined through the context of missionary work. There are an unfortunate number of stories detailing white missionaries and quote-unquote peacekeepers who enter underdeveloped countries to quote-unquote help the people, but end up manipulating, exploiting, Mm -hmm. abusing, and harming those that they were allegedly trying to protect. Mm -hmm. 
So have you seen the Instagram account Barbie Savior? <laughs> no, but I'm going to look it up right okay, now. Look it up right now. <laughs> like, oh, God. Young people go on these mission trips, like, for the gram, kind of. <laughs> oh, my God. This is funny. Oh, like, one, she's, like, all dressed up standing in front of, like, a really demolished home and there's a child <laughs> in the picture and Barbie's just like, hey, <laughs> standing there all fancy like. So what often happens in mission work is that Christians feel that God has asked them to address inequality and to tell others about him. But any attempts to do that are undergirded by the perception that people in other countries cannot manage themselves and that only external quote unquote white saviors can put things in order. I would say that's like the primary reason why I find mission work so problematic. But um, one more definition before we go on is cultural imperialism. The influences of an economically dominant culture on others. So the top three are China, the United States, and Britain. Canada is like number 10. (laughs) (laughs) We're not dominating anyone tonight. (laughs) JK lol. So the philosophy behind why Christians engage in mission work is only Christianity is the truest religion and purest form of connection to God. And if anybody believes in anything less or more than that, that they will go to hell. So beliefs on hell differ among Christians, obviously, but primary among them is the eternal burning in a lake of fire, which is obviously like not great. Well, and I always got thrown in my face the complete absence of God, meaning that there would be no love or anything else. So if you are a Christian and you do believe in hell, like you obviously, like even if you didn't like someone, you wouldn't want them to go there. Yeah. So the Bible also clearly states and emphasizes taking care of the poor and needy. There's an invisible belief that North American, that the North American evangelical or like Western European version of christianity is what everyone needs it's a need you don't have this you want this get it so unfortunately however we do not often address the intersectionality of religion and culture to speak of one is to often speak of the other so when you go into a foreign country and you say hey let me tell you about my religion and how it's truer than yours what i'm really saying is hey Let me tell you about my culture and how it's truer than yours. Mm. So the indoctrination of religion is just as much about the indoctrination of Western culture. So your religion is the false religion is often tied up with your culture is the false culture. There's something wrong, bad, inherently false about your culture. Then that often gets translated into there's something wrong, bad, inherently false about not being white. (laughs) yikes yikes um there's also a hidden belief that we have to come in and help because the people in that country are not capable of helping themselves most countries that are not economically dominant did not get that way without assistance from countries that are economically dominant So problems with missionary work. One, number one problem, missionary work is not trauma. Well, I wouldn't say all missionary work is not trauma informed, but I would say from what I've seen, the vast majority is not trauma informed and there's a lack of understanding around cultural context. So um, we're going to read a few more quotes from the books here. 
Was I called to love and care for the poor? Most definitely. Was I equipped to love and care for the poor in respectful, sensible ways that went to the root of the problem? Like, not even close. See, it takes a certain amount of confidence and, let's be real, a hefty dose of arrogance to believe that God is calling you to go into the world and to be the hands and feet of Jesus, especially when you don't speak the language, don't understand the culture, and can't find the freaking place on the map. <laughs> this is from Gospel of Trees. Maddening beloved Haiti, land of myriad contradictions, the orphans who appeared half-starved and abandoned on the, on the hospital doorstep, only to be reclaimed later by smiling, guileless parents, the reforestation projects mangled by goats, the donated infant formula pocketed on the sly by opportunistic employees. Each frustrating scenario held a yet more complicated layer hidden underneath. And then this is from the very worst missionary again. I love the kids who came to our clubs, and I genuinely wanted to help them. But when I looked out across the expanse of tin and plywood shacks, it dawned on me that maybe I had no idea what changing their lives would actually require. I could show up every week for a decade to hand out bananas and help toddlers glue cotton balls onto coloring pages with Bible verses, but their complicated lives would remain just as messy and complex as the first time I'd arrived to help. So the second problem with missionary work is that it leaves missionaries beholden to supporters in unhealthy ways. Like in a normal working relationship, for example, a boss would not have access to what you do on weekends or how your personal life is. And you would not have to spin a triumphant ta tale in order to keep like getting paid, basically. Like I don't have to go into work and be like, my marriage is going great. <laughs> I'm growing in my faith. We got so many things accomplished last week. It was crazy. So you should probably keep paying me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Part of your job is like you're your own public relations. <laughs> yeah. And you're like own marketing. You're your own hype man, basically. Which is so weird. Which I would hate so much. I'd be like, just shoot me. I don't want to hype myself up anymore. <laughs> so this is a quote from the Gospel of Trees. We were the sent ones, for that is the root of the word missionary, sent by the Holy Spirit, sent by churches who paid for our plane tickets and salary, who expected glory stories. A redemptive theme was expected in each and every newsletter and slideshow. If my parents couldn't deliver, then the funding would be redirected to more eloquent storytellers. True. So the next problem with missionary work is that often the people that go or are sent, quote unquote, are not actually qualified to do whatever work it is. So this is from the very worst missionary. At some point or in one way or another, we had each concluded that we'd been called by God. And so apparently we were. Was that enough? Would God's calling in a year of language school make an electrician capable of running an orphanage? Prepare a high school teacher to plant a church or a youth pastor to start a business in a new place and culture? It's about recognizing that we have a responsibility as the church to choose whom we send and that we send the right people to do the right things in the right places and to not send them when it's not right. And therein lies the real problem. That's really not much choosing going on. If you raise your hand and you have enough cash, someone will send you out. I choose you, Pikachu. Um, I volunteer! I volunteer! You're not trained to go on the Hunger Games, Katniss. Shut your fucking mouth. 
Okay. This next quote is from the Gospel of Treats. In the process that led us here, we had often been advised, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. Okay, side note. On my short-term mission trip, I can't even tell you how many times we were told we were told that God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. They told oh, us that like every day. I have heard that so many times. So many In my times. discipleship training. Even just reading it, I'm like, ooh. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, back to the Gospel of Trees. <laughs> we had practically congratulated ourselves on being inexperienced and unqualified for the work ahead. But being surrounded by a bunch of other ill-equipped and unqualified missionaries, I began to question this logic. Doesn't saying that God equips the called imply that the equipping comes to us in one single romantic instant in which we are suddenly transformed into someone more skilled and more capable than before? Because that didn't seem to be happening for any of us. <laughs> I wondered if, in clinging to the idea that God's equipping follows God's calling, we had flooded the planet with Christian do-gooders who may, for any number of reasons, be unfit, incompetent, or just plain unnecessary. And I wondered if I was one of them. There's also this documentary about this woman who went to, I think she went to Uganda. It's called Savior Complex. She was not a doctor or a nurse, but she wore scrubs and she wore like a stethoscope. And then, oh, I remember this. And then people were like, oh, she's a doctor. And they started giving her money yeah. for her as if she was one. And so... Yeah, there's this whole documentary about it. Go check it out if you want to. Um, so next problem with missionary work is it often disrupts the country's economic and social ecosystem. So this is this is a story from the very worst missionary that completely sort of demonstrates that point, which is which Kate's gonna read for us. <laughs> Get tucked in. I'd begin to see a similar situation play out where we put on these kids' clubs every week, which became a regular destination for short-term missionaries. They arrived with a garbage bag full of shoes, perform a puppet show or a skit, and hand out loads of candy. Whenever the team arrived, the mothers would send out all their youngsters because they know that their kids could play gringos like a fiddle. Older boys and girls would run to greet these missionaries with huge smiles on their dirty little faces, while the younger siblings held back, giving the foreigners something to work for. <laughs> got to work for it <laughs> the kids marveled at the cameras and cell phones as if they'd never seen them before in their whole entire life happily climbing onto complete strangers laps for selfies and grinning for photo ops but the really clever kids stood apart from the group looking forlorn and doe-eyed until one of the anguished suburbanites singled them out for a special attention before the hour was up, the kid would usually be wearing a new bracelet, carrying a new keychain that they begged off of their empathetic benefactor. Waving like crazy through the window of their rental van, the group would leave delightfully heartbroken and feeling like they had done something special to touch the lives of these needy kids in an exotic country. The kids, many of whom stayed home from school to take full advantage of their gringo visitors, would fall even further behind in their subpar education, taking another tiny step away from the hope of escaping their dire circumstances. An ironic guarantee that in the years to come, they'd still be there to teach their own kids to grin and graciously accept handouts from helpful foreigners. I've been struggling with my own presence in the community for quite some time. The young men watched us from afar, jaws set firmly and arms crossed. They were allowing us to be there, allowing a group of wealthy white women to come into their community because we brought healthy snacks and fun crafts for the kids. But they were not happy to see us, and they wanted us to know. 
I was also struck by how virtually all the kids' parents disappeared whenever we arrived, ignoring the fact that so many unemployed adults living in such close proximity, there was never any shortage of childcare. I let myself believe everyone took off because they were grateful for an hour or so of free babysitting. But really, would I want to stand there and watch while someone else fed my children? No. I would walk away too. I would let them feed my kid and probably even be grateful because a free meal is a free meal. But I would not stick around for the show. The more time I spent in the community, the more I realized that the poor people are poor and uneducated, but they are not dumb. They knew the SUV I drove up was worth more money than their family would see in 20 years. They knew that my kids went to the private schools and I lived in a good house on a paved road with a whistleblowing security guard who patrolled on a bicycle. And while I do think that they knew we meant well, I'm pretty sure they knew that we were utterly clueless. No doubt the path to poverty in Costa Rica is not unique. The residents of the community suffered from alcohol and drug abuse, domestic violence, lack of education and opportunities, government corruption, mental illness, and broken families. The programs that keep poor people fed and clothed often fail to address the problems that keep them poor. In other words, poverty is hella complicated. Amen. <laughs> this is from the Gospel of Trees. We have come, or so we told ourselves, to improve Haiti, noblesse oblige. But there were unanticipated consequences to this new role. If, for example, the son of a missionary commanded the son of one of the Haitian agricultural technicians to get off the tricycle, my sisters and I noted with surprise that he obeyed. My mother had imagined before we left the U.S. that in no time at all we'd make Haitian friends and learn to speak Creole, but navigating the minefield of power and privilege required skills she didn't possess. Perhaps, she concluded, it would be easier not to let her daughters play with the local children. It was one split-second decision, our first betrayal of the missionary ideal, love your neighbor as yourself. The next problem that we want to talk about is... Missionary work often disempowers rather than empowers. As we talked about white saviorism, white superiority, which is self-explanatory, and white centering, which is when white people will place themselves at the center of a story about people of color. Say, for example, you go to an anti-racist rally and a white person speaks the whole time. <laughs> That's white centering. They're like, yeah. it's about me and what I'm going through in regards to your struggle <laughs> and i totally understand <laughs> yeah. yeah this is from the gospel of trees it took me years to understand this fear disguised as pity haiti as the first free black nation to shake off the yoke of slavery more than half a century before the country whose founding document had declared that all men were created equal seemed to be prefaced always by its tagline the poorest country in the western hemisphere it was a quick dismissive epithet a way to denigrate what could not otherwise be understood. Poverty provided a reliable excuse for self-congratulatory concern, a slave to our imagined superiority. And this is also from the Gospel of Trees. I couldn't even begin to explain all the things that I had missed about Haiti. The lizards that puffed green throats against the ceiling, the crack of thunder and the roar of rain on tin, snorkeling in bathtub warm beach water, the buzzing cicadas, Tap taps bouncing over potholes with music blaring, but it seemed like the only stories our church supporters wanted to hear about was how sad and poor everyone must be in Haiti, and about how much good we have done bringing God's light into such a dark place. I gave up trying. They didn't get it. The next problem is 
missionary work tends to exploit the already vulnerable and it also creates a perfect environment for abuse to be covered up which protects the abuser i think this happens both within mission organizations themselves like female missionaries will get abused and then the mission organization will be like well this is going to look bad for us and our support so we're going to cover it up and it also happens like if a missionary abuses or exploits the people that they're trying to help that also is really systemically covered up and etc so this is a thing that happened in canada where the church and the government were like these indigenous people need to be converted to christianity and they need to be converted to basically quote-unquote our ways because the belief was that they're uncivilized and they're going to go to hell if we don't if we don't quote-unquote help them so they basically took children away from their parents and then without the parents consent and then like sometimes in the dead of night they would show up and just like take these children away from their parents and so they had these children at these residential schools and like often children in these residential schools were abused so so much that they ended up dying like they were abused to death literally and so because it was put on by the church and by the government there's no way for abuse to be spotted or reported or addressed it just continues like unchecked and i think that still goes on today in a lot of missionary organizations so another thing that we want to touch on is colonialism in africa so missionary education was used as a great weapon to confuse the people's minds it undermined african culture and the general way of life of the africans in preparation for the colonizers the missionaries taught english to those who were to be colonized by the english so that they could later provide the needed service as officers and there's also the fact that a third of the first slaves first ever slaves in history a third of those were quote-unquote tithed to the church so the church was like like part of slavery from the very beginning and so I do think that I do think that it's quite difficult to even if you're doing missionary work nowadays it's almost impossible to extricate yourself from that kind of legacy of colonialism and white supremacy and these different things the next problem with missionary work is that a lot of the time it's simply not needed and people just like want a vacation. <laughs> they just yeah. like want to go somewhere. <laughs> Good talks. So this is from The Very Worst Missionary. I showed up believing I was called, expecting to be equipped and hoping to change lives, only to learn that Costa Rica didn't really need another missionary. Turns out they already had gobs of their own churches and pastors and spiritual leaders. They had Bible colleges and seminars, for fuck's sake. Costa Ricans... Christians didn't need North American Christians to teach them how to follow Jesus, and Costa Rican people didn't need any more well-intended foreigners to come and help them. They were just fine when we got there, and they'd be f just fine when we left. This is from the Gospel of Trees. It felt suddenly absurd that as missionaries we had come to teach Haitians about God. God was already here. The last thing that we want to discuss, and I just called it the perfect con, is one where everyone gets what they want. <laughs> <laughs> so this story is from the very worst missionary, again. 
While the Christian community tends to blindly revere missionaries, we'd noticed that other people seemed a bit more skeptical and, well, weirded out by them. And as we got to know the football players better, some of the guys were brutally honest with us about how both long- and short-term missionaries were often perceived by locals. And that was lazy, spoiled, entitled, patronizing, and just plain annoying. A few months into Steve's first session with the team, they went out to participate in a sports clinic hosted by a Christian athletic ministry from the States. Their group would donate used football gear and a few hours of specialized instruction in exchange for the opportunity to evangelize. Every team in the league agreed to this deal from these complete strangers because they needed the gear and extra training was always helpful. On the morning of the event, though, this is what Steve witnessed. Local coaches and players who attended the same clinic the year before just took a few minutes ahead of time to solicit volunteers to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. On our team of 50, the head coach assigned half a dozen guys to raise their hand at the appointed time. Everyone else was urged to play along but to not overdo it so that the missionaries would feel successful and keep coming back. <laughs> After practice... You did it! Yeah. <laughs> After practice, the guys were asked to huddle up and take a seat on the grass. Right on cue, a couple of enthusiastic short-term missionaries got up to share their personal testimonies through a translator. They wrapped things up with an altar call, imploring everyone to bow their heads and close their eyes and ask anyone who felt led to invite Jesus into their heart and to raise their hand. None of our players actually invited Jesus into their hearts that day, but six brown hands shot up into the air and everyone left happy. <laughs> Later, knowing that we were still technically missionaries, our friends playfully teased us about the incident and pointed out that our kind would continue to be welcomed with open arms because we always brought free stuff and because we funneled so much money by way of tourism into the country year after year. They said missionaries could be counted on like arms dealers to smuggle any matter of American merchandise undeclared through customs and immigration if it meant that they could get out of paying Costa Rica's astronomical import taxes on helmets, pads, cleats, and whatever else they needed. And if it created jobs for their friends and neighbors, our guys would gladly pretend to become Christians <laughs> annually and bend over for condescending pa pats on the head from a few well-meaning North American do-gooders. <laughs> it's mutual exploitation, explained Mateo. I also wanted to talk about the 2016 movie Silence, uh, directed by Martin Scorsese and starring Andrew Garfield and modern wow. thirst trap Adam Driver. I always say Adam Driver is like ugly sexy. Everybody says that's just I don't I, see it. Oh, I'm sorry. I think he's very sexually charismatic. Are you kidding me? You just you do you. When I saw that movie with him and Lady Gaga and High Def, I was like, <laughs> this movie is a very confusing time for me as a bisexual. <laughs> and I just need to see them make love in high def. Like I just please show me this immediately. Anyways, that's a story about Back my to missionary skills. work. <laughs> Back to the missionary position. <laughs> Did you ever watch Silence? I have not seen it yet. Yeah. I don't think you would want to now. Okay, it's cool. like it's like very intense. Yeah. There's a lot of torture that goes on. I do find torture extremely hard to watch. Okay. I'm, I was like, 
no, 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 no. Like, if one person is unable to defend themselves, I always... Like, I like watching fights where, like, the opponents are... There's, there's equal less. Yeah, like in Troy, the sword fights. I'm like, yeah, I'll watch Get it, day. boy. I don't give a shit. <laughs> but if it's, like, someone being tortured, I'm like, shut it off. <laughs> Anyways. So, there's these two 17th century Portuguese missionaries. Father Sebastian Rodriguez, played by Andrew Garfield. First of all, do these men look Portuguese to you? Because no. they don't look Portuguese Not to me. At all. <laughs> but anyways, and Father Francisco Garupe, Adam Driver. These two, these two guys, these two priests, have a mentor named Liam Neeson, <laughs> and he went to Japan like however many years ago, and they kind of receive word through the grapevine. The hot gossip <laughs> is that their mentor, who's played by Liam Neeson has apostatized in japan so he's renounced their faith completely and they're like wow that's really like kind of fucking weird let's just like go and find him and like see what let's just take a nice little trip yeah they're like there's no way that this guy renounced the faith like that's crazy he needs to well we got to go find out like what's happening over (laughs) there what is happening so they travel to japan and they're advised against it they're like literally do not go to japan they're like we're you know what we're gonna do we're gonna go to japan so they go there um and while they're there they're ministering to the christian villagers who worship in secret because christianity is illegal in japan at the time so basically if they're caught practicing christianity by the feudal lords or the ruling samurai they have to renounce their faith or face a prolonged and agonizing death (laughs) So, long story short, no spoilers, but they do get caught. <laughs> Who saw this one coming? <laughs> so, Garupe drowns trying to save one of his converts, and Rodriguez is thrown into prison. And they're trying to get him, they're trying to get him to renounce his faith. They're like, renounce it, do it, do it now. And so, one way they try to convince him is they send his former mentor to him. So, his former mentor shows up, and he's like, hey... How's it going today? Um, just so you know, you should probably renounce the faith. I did it and I'm doing great. <laughs> Look how great life is. Look at me now. <laughs> so he's like, I basically did it to save my fellow Christians who were being tortured. And he's like, I now no longer believe that there's a place for Christianity in Japan. Mm. And Real Rodriguez is like, I am straight up not having a good time. <laughs> <laughs> so... He, like, kind of, you know, gives him something to talk about, but he doesn't renounce yet. And so that night they take they take Rodriguez to see five of his converts being tortured in front of him. So, and these are five converts, by the way, who have already renounced. <laughs> oh. Okay. But the Japanese are like, no, he needs to renounce. And so we're still going to torture you. And they're like, come on. What have I done enough? <laughs> yeah. So they're like, we're not going to stop torturing these people until you renounce we want you to renounce and rodriguez is like oh i don't feel good about this and they're like the way we want you my tummy hurts (laughs) i've been turned into a cow can i go home (laughs) um so the way that they want him to recant is by stepping so they have this image of jesus that they it's like a woodblock print of jesus on the cross and they're like, we want you to step on this thing. Destroy it with your foot. How big is your foot? Who cares? Destroy it. Destroy it. <laughs> and Rodriguez is like, oh my God, moment of truth. And then he kind of has a vision 
where Jesus comes to him. He hears the voice of Jesus essentially giving him permission to step on him. He's like, hey, it's okay. Like, it's it's okay. He's like, you can do it. Just go ahead and step on me. Like, I can I can take it. Like, I'm still going to love you. And I thought that was, like, kind of a really beautiful and kind of subversive depiction of the love and mercy of Jesus. I think a more, like, modern-day Christian-approved mode of storytelling would have been, like, and then they died for the faith. And it was so awesome. And we should be more like them. Oh, because then they yeah, they never denied. Gotcha. Yeah. So it, like, feeds into this martyr complex that a lot of Christians and missionaries have romanticized, I think. The movie Silence kind of poses the idea of, like, maybe we should stop romanticizing this. Like, are we sure that's what Jesus would have us do? Mm-hmm. Are we sure that we know Jesus like we think we do? The whole idea of the cross is that Jesus suffers so that we can be saved. And I think I take that, like, quite literally in the movie Silence. Jesus is stepped on and the suffering stops. It's, like, direct correlation. The, mo- the movie also kind of very gently poses the idea that some countries, like, are just are going to reject Christianity. And I don't think that that necessarily means that they reject God or Jesus, but I think it does mean that Christianity just actually is not feasible in some cultural contexts. Mm. Please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that Jesus or God or the resurrection doesn't work. It's more just that. I am that. not <laughs> is saying that. It's more that just like this sort of European version of Christianity doesn't. And then maybe it's a bad idea to send these sort of Western Christians to fail in other countries when it might be a better idea to just keep them here. A lot less romantic but worthier mission might be to bring the light of Jesus into our own communities and neighborhoods, to care for the land here, to educate ourselves on on indigenous ways of knowing and belonging here, to reach into the dark places at home. A lot of people, like, don't think about this, but those places exist, and they're, like, quite close to us at all times. We just don't, I think we don't think about it that way as often, because it, it's not as romantic as something in a different country, I think, to people. Yeah, and I think there's the whole feel-goodness when you go somewhere and you're helping people that, <laughs> in your mind, you see as less than yeah you leave then with this like overwhelming feel goodness yeah like you did something that they couldn't have done you superhero saved them yeah and i feel like when you're at home in your own streets you won't get that same kind of high yeah because there's not that there still is like a a privileged sort of disconnect but it's not as stark as as because because of cultural imperialism and because we live in a country that's more economically dominant than yeah. the ones that we would ostensibly go to visit or try to help, people there are just taught to kind of like always defer to whoever's from the more economically dominant culture. Yeah. So it's kind of like they're telling you just what you want to hear kind of thing. The evangelism thing aside, I did wonder about the issue of foreign aid specifically. Like, is foreign aid actually needed? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? And unfortunately, the answer is both. Yeah. <laughs> there is, there is a, like, a modern sort of controversy about foreign aid. With some saying that we need to step in 
and some saying that you guys need to leave well enough alone here. Yeah. So there's a disagreement about whether foreign aid helps or hinders economic growth. And there's basically there just isn't a consensus at this point. Like there's empirical evidence for both sides. And long story short is we're a hot mess and nobody knows what's going on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Least of all me. The following content contains religious language and beliefs which may be triggering for individuals who have experienced spiritual trauma. If listening to this part of the podcast causes any sort of distressing emotional response, please prioritize your self-care and fast forward. Here are Amanda and Mike talking about why they joined the mission field, how they saw white saviorism play out, how their beliefs have changed about missionary work, and why they decided to leave. I was about 15 years old, and I was really on fire in my relationship with Jesus. Uh, I just wanted people to know that he loves them. So I started to um, ask my parents if I could go on a missions trip. And when I was 16, they let me go. So as a teenager, young adult, I went to Sweden twice with teen missions, Ukraine once with teen missions, and Haiti with my church. And then I went to China with YWAM. So I was on work teams when I was in Sweden and Ukraine. And in China, I taught... English, basically just conversations with the college students. And in Haiti, it was also a work team. I wanted to do a work team because I wanted to see, like, to see the product of what I had done. And there was chances for evangelizing, which are required, I think, for all the teams. I wanted to do something that was like a practical help, whether it was working on buildings or something like that. And then in China, they call it friendship evangelism. And so... Whenever we went there, there was really no other options. It was under the guise of like teaching English, which was basically just helping them practice and have conversations. And then after China, Mike and I joined staff and worked in Florida at Teen Missions headquarters. There were options for us to go overseas, but because we started having our family and my pregnancies were bad, we decided to stay in Florida at the base. When I was in Sweden, the two times I went, we went to a youth with a mission base. They uh, have people from all over the world, and they're led by teams of people from all over the world. I don't feel like any of the experiences I had there felt that way because there were so many different nationalities working together in unity. Ukraine, we went there to help build a building or complete a basement, really. Mike and I were trying to talk about it earlier a little bit, and we the man who was leading there was, like, he likes things done professionally as far as, like, building codes and things like that. And so he would want things to be done in a very proper way. I think he did get frustrated sometimes with the way that the people in Ukraine and their culture may, may not have been as strict with building codes. So it's, it's hard to say with that one. He wanted it done well and safe. And he also, he treated the people in America the same sort of way as far as expecting something to be done 100%. He didn't really want anything to be done that was unsafe or not within code. When I was in Haiti with my youth group, I don't really remember seeing much of people 
thinking that their way is the only way. Like in Haiti, you have people living in the streets and not having clean water and not having food. So, but when we went that time, this woman had been there for, I think, 30 years, a single woman. She was in her 60s and she she was tough and she wanted done things things done well as as well but she hired haitian staff and gave them authority to do all everything she had the final say because she was you know it was her ministry that she was leading but whenever she left she just gave it to them and is totally hands off so that's kind of a debate i think mike and i were even talking about it's hard to identify whenever someone employs the people from the country and then give empowers them as well and she ultimately left it like so she was playing this role for many many years she gave people a place to live she gave them food she gave them way to get clean water she expected them to do things right but then she handed them over the same authority that she had whenever she left did you have anything else you were going to say about that yeah, the one thing that I was thinking while we were there, they, they were having issues with things being stolen from their property. Like when we were there, they had large generator batteries stolen from their property, which, you know, would play into anybody's skepticism or critical nature about people that you're there to to help. And, and so 30 years of going around and around with that happening i'm sure just kind of puts a little bit of a, a criticalness inside of you that maybe wasn't there to begin with so while we were going over there just for a couple of weeks she had been there for decades and you know we probably we definitely did see things differently in terms of the people that that she was uh, pouring forth effort and resource to help and then to see stuff get stolen w was really sad because it really limited what they were able to do and then they had to lock down a little bit harder uh, because of that so i'm sure that's just a cyclical process of being in, in the middle of you know the mess of people and in china i we with youth with a mission my experience there is all of the people in charge were chinese and so we were just there to serve them so i heard stories through the mission organization that we worked with about some of their leaders going into places and acting such a way that they were the savior but in our in in my experience i really didn't see it because everywhere i went had the, the people who lived there were running everything and so to me that's the goal of of missions is to help empower the people who are already there to serve their own people better. I was only overseas short term. I was never there more than two months. My perspective changed the most with the time in Haiti that we took our two boys because it was the most real life. It was There was no teams there. It was just us seeing the actual day-to-day -day operations. Um, it just, it felt really hard and really hopeless, and I feel like there should be more support for missionaries. I feel like they should get, get more training, probably, for how to deal with compassion fatigue, which is what Mike was talking about earlier with her. Sorry, my kid is making weird noises out there, guys. We can't find a quiet place.
I think I would provide counseling for missionaries, which I know um, some ministries do. I don't know if I would say overall if my perspective has changed because I've always kind of seen, like I already said before, where I've gone in places and the people who are living there run the place. That's still what I believe and how I believe it should be done. We didn't decide to leave. We were asked to leave because um, I wasn't able to work because I was pregnant and sick. Um, so it's the, this all goes more into our longer story, but we would have probably stayed with the organization. And I don't know, we've even talked about going back later on in our later years. So it was a lack of uh, perspective for me initially. And if what you want to be is a missionary or work for, for God in, in that way, then it's not a bad idea to be a missionary because I think a lot of people see missions and missionary work as a secondary role of the, the church, but it's really a, a front line where you're going sometimes where you're not welcome and sharing the gospel and making friends and establishing connections and so really they've got a hard job and we had missionaries come to our church off and on through the years and as a mennonite church it's a very very missions-minded denomination and so they would bring in missionaries from all over the world really when i was young and so i heard their stories and they weren't glamorizing it at all because I heard about how hard it was for them, but I still found it attractive and very purposeful. And so, you know, that's something that I I thought that I could do really well in because I do enjoy people and getting to know cultures, and it's very interesting to me, and uh, that's what got me into it. So I, I did a little bit of uh, just evangelism and, and uh, a smaller amount of, like, work. It's where I met you, Megan, on the work team when we were pouring a second story for a Bible school. But I enjoyed the evangelism a lot more because I could actually go into people's homes, talk with them. I say talk with them. I didn't know their language, but you don't have to know a language to establish communication or interest but between two people. The most important thing, um, I think the first would be a, a desire to see for me, is would be to see them saved. And so they were all very generous. Even if they had nothing, they were all very generous. They would welcome us in. And I was 16 or 17. I'm 43 now. And so I got to see that. And I thought that was very surprising to me that people would give out of their own poverty or little that they had and give us the best that they had. Sometimes we'd have interpreters come with us. And, and that was that was fun because you got to kind of retranslate because some things don't cross over very well in what you're trying to say. So you had to be thoughtful on how to say things. Some of it was uh, cultural and some of it was, hey, we don't have a word for that. What else do you got? <laughs> Any team that I was on for the summer, we had nationals leading the team, meaning they were people from their own country. So whenever we did stuff that looked dumb or stupid or offensive, they would say, don't do that. We learned in a healthy way of how to not be abrasive to culture and to people. In my mind, I always find that the least attractive thing about any type of job is the administrational side of it. The view that I hadn't seen before was what they had to keep track of and inventory of 
and plan ahead for, I don't know if it's possible to glamorize missions work. My view changed a little bit when I saw the, uh, the administration side and the po political side of it, I guess you could say, was when they had to still acquiesce to whatever headquarters they had because they weren't the final voice in really anything. They could speak to what made sense and what they had available as a resource, but it was ultimately someone else's decision what, what they ultimately did, and, and that didn't make sense to me very much. Whether it's don't go here, don't go there, or go here, or spend money on this, or we don't have the money for that allocated. So like headquarters would say that to the leaders or the staff? Yeah, it's like you always had somebody else to answer to, and they never quite knew the situation because they're not there. I don't know, I just feel like they should be able to make critical decisions for themselves. I think missions is far more significant role than what we make it out to be. If they are the extension of the church in a different area, then I think we should be putting a lot more resource there. And some people do, some churches do, but they are a lot of them are faith-based supported. They either have to make way more money to support other areas of the ministries that they don't directly work with, which doesn't entirely make sense to me. Like, I, I feel like it should be way more targeted towards what you're doing. So, like, there has to be a lot more effort, a lot more, this is the need, this isn't our need, but this is the ministry's need. I think that's always an uncomfortable spot to be. Just more resource, not a little bit, but a lot, really to get more people not really just in, in whatever you perceive missions work as being, whether it's just going somewhere and doing something to stretch your mind of what the gospel is capable of. And why did you decide to leave? Well, again, we didn't decide to leave. Yeah, yeah that was a tough decision made for us, but ultimately it was, I guess, the best decision for us that we didn't make because it, it so we were able to make better decisions for our family. We're just so young. It's not like we really knew what was going to be the best for us, but it did help us to continue to do what we're doing now, which is live by faith. I want to go back about how your beliefs of missionary work have changed. Just a few more thoughts about that from me. I really didn't... I used to not think that we needed that much education to tell someone about Jesus. And so now I, I don't agree with that. I, I think that you should put a lot of effort into the culture that you're moving into and if you're if you're going to be there long term like maybe you know years putting uh, of learning about their culture learning the language even though you can communicate in other ways I, I think language is important and there's so many things that I think you could learn and we see, have seen that example from friends who have gone through other organizations and they literally spend years training for one country and one culture and so i think that is important for the longevity of the ministry of the person and and i don't know because i had never gone to any of these schools obviously right but i think that white saviorism or the idea of coming in and changing some the changing culture i think that definitely needs to be addressed and people need to be willing to lay down what they think is best and and the people that have gone through those long-term trainings do believe that. They live like that. So I think that is something to me that would change, that, that has changed. My sister and brother-in-law 
lived in Turkey for many years. Over 12. And they were passionate about their ministry. They empowered the people in the country. Uh, and that's how their organization taught them how to, to be. But they also had a lot of training beforehand as well and were expected to know the language and had, you know, required language school and things like that. So they had to assimilate to the culture and that's what was expected of them. So I really think that it depends on what kind of uh, ministry you are with that continually perpetrates this white saviorism. We heard stories about it, but we never experienced it within the organization that we were with. Megan, I know you went to Africa, so maybe you experienced it much different than us. We never went there. And I think part of it has to be with the people that are leading your excursion or like if you have nobody from the country there, then you're going to have no perspective except for your own, which yeah. you could do more harm than good. But we gave you our 25 minutes and we love you so much. Okay, bye. Questions for us. Have you ever done missionary work? If so, where and when and for what purpose? Kate, I don't think. No, no. not in that regard. Did you ever like want to? Were you ever like, you know, it'd be great. Going on a missions trip. Kind of, yeah. My mom, brother, and sister did when I was young. They went to Mexico. And nice. it did seem, it seemed really fun. And I watched the, like, <laughs> the BTS video of it behind the scenes. Oh, nice. And, then, and yeah, it seemed like so much fun, right? Mm-hmm. But no, I never felt that feeling. I guess I did, like, in-city stuff. Because like we did our new yeah. our church planting and yeah. had a very specific mission involved, but no, yeah. never anything overseas. Yeah. How about you, Sals? Oh boy. So tune gonna... in next week. No kidding. <laughs> so, but seriously, our next episode is gonna be um, me talking about my specific experience with two other people who experienced it with me. It was with a mission organization called Teen Missions International, but um, sort of a sort of a short summary is that I did two, I did two different missions trips with them, and it was like two months at a time, and we went to the first one I did was in Brazil, and so we were building, like it was a bunch of like teenagers who have no experience in framing. <laughs> None, not zero, zero of experience. They had handed me tools, <laughs> like who in their right fucking minds, and they were like, "Here, Megan can do construction work." I was like, "Have you met me ever <laughs> at any time?" So we were building a house for the missionary couple who already lived there, and it's like, could, like they could have paid someone else to do this. Like, why are we doing? Anyways, whatever, it's fine. We did that, and then sometimes we would show the Jesus film in the evening. They had this, like, rendition of, like, the Jesus film from, like, the 70s. Oh, good. That yeah. they had me. Yeah, so we would show that. And, like, sometimes nobody would come, and then our team leader would be like, we're planting seeds. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> Sounds good, you guys. And then the other one was to Zambia, and we were trying to build another water well for in like a couple of the villages there and then we would also show the jesus film in the evenings and i'll obviously i'll talk about this more in the in the next episode but it was very like 
during the film, we would be expected to like pray in groups to ward off spiritual attacks. <laughs> so yeah, that was what I did. What did you think of missionary work in your quote unquote before deconstruction era? And how has your opinion changed over the years? Honestly, I don't think that my view on it has changed all that much. I think it's just gotten wider. <laughs> but I was never really passionate about it or anything. Like when my friend would go, actually, when a few different people within the church that I cared about went on mission trips, like I wanted to support them. Mm -hmm. So I was like, yeah, go you. But it was never a thing. Huzzah. Yeah, it was never a thing for me. But definitely how it's changed over the years. It's like, it feels gross. That's the simplest way for me to put it. It's just, yeah, it feels gross. Yeah. It's so much the white saverism that I just hate. Yeah. And I do think that there are some people that go with genuine love and care in their hearts. And don't realize the bigger picture. <laughs> don't understand it and everything. But I do think it's quite icky. Yeah. How about you? Did you like always? So but so when people would go on mission trips, were you like, that's icky, but I support you? Or were you just like... Yeah, I didn't get it. Yeah. I didn't. I, I guess I wouldn't think that it was icky then. But yeah, it never felt like it was for me. I never felt that calling. Um, but it's never laid it on my heart I'll tell you that much yeah but I definitely like I knew some good people that when they were going on these things and they were passionate about it I'm like yeah I want to help you do this okay so for me before my deconstruction era I think like when I was younger like a teenager and even mid-20s I was really kind of sold on the whole thing I thought it was like imperative for us as christians i thought we really had a responsibility mm -hmm. to tell people about the christian god that like it's in the bible he asked us to that's our job and so i think i did really romanticize the idea of swooping in and quote unquote saving people that i felt really needed my help but i do think this is an underlying thing like part of my personality like i i do have like a bit of a like a superhero thing yeah like i will fix it yeah. I will take the ring to Mordor. <laughs> and if you can't carry it, I, I will carry you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Sam. Um, I also didn't have any cultural context for how developing countries are often kept poor by the economically dominant countries. And so after my experience actually going overseas for a short while, like whatever it was for us, six weeks, I think it did start to dawn on me that like, okay, like what did we actually do yeah. there that the people living and working there couldn't have done themselves? Like, why did we, why were we called in to do this? Does yeah. nobody know how to build a house in this country? And it's like, the answer is no. People <laughs> do know how to build houses. And we, on both the mission trips, it didn't feel like we really helped anyone. Like it didn't feel... It was like, our goal is this. And it's like, did we accomplish our goal? Not really. Did we use their resources? Yes, we did. Did we benefit them in any way? Uh, negligible. Like, <laughs> nobody fucking knows. Um, One of them learned a new handshake. Yeah. Was it, was our presence beneficial to them in any way? And it's like, I guess if you're like, it's beneficial for people to make new friends, then it was beneficial. But I don't, 
No. Like, yeah. I would say it benefited me hugely. Yeah. Like, educationally, it was beneficial. I got to experience another culture, and I actually got a front view seat to poverty, and I made some, like, intensely foundational friendships, which have lasted to this day. And I got to go home and be congratulated by everybody and have my ego stroked that I was like such a guy person. <laughs> so I think after the Zambia trip in particular, I kind of looked around and went like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. That feeling increased over the years when I saw like failed mission trip after failed mission trip or missionaries who gave positive reports. But I, when I tried to find out, like, okay, so what were, like, the KPIs of the work that you did? <laughs> like, can I get some key performance indicators? What did you actually do? Yeah. And then it was, like, it would just be, like, all smoke and mirrors. It's like, well, we went out for coffee with a bunch of people. And I'm like, like, I don't get it. So my last hope in the mission field was kind of based in this idea of Bible translation because my other best friend um, – was a Bible translator and she went to school for many years to become trained in like linguistics so she could go do this. And I was like, okay, here's something that like not everyone can do. Yeah. Like you have to be highly trained to do it. Um, there's not linguistic schools in every country. No. <laughs> so, and it is needed, not just for the Bible, but like, the rate at which lang- like lesser known languages disappear is yeah. quite frankly upsetting. <laughs> and when a language disappears, like because language and culture are so intertwined, the culture would disappear along yeah. with it. And I was like, okay, that's bad. Like we don't want, no, we don't want that to happen. <laughs> yeah. So we should send someone over there to like translate some of their culture's writings and also to translate the Bible. Cause maybe they just, maybe they want to read it. I don't know their lives. Yeah, not everyone can read Greek and Hebrew, and not everyone can learn an almost extinct language. And so I wouldn't say at that point that I was like, people need the Bible. But I I think I was more like, I would just like everyone to have all of the information. Mm -hmm. Like, I wanted people to know that it was a thing that exists so they could make like an informed choice. You know what they do with the information? That's between you and the Lord. But it, it was like I had like a friend. I wanted everyone to have the chance to meet that friend. It's like how I always tell everyone, like my friend Anna, she sings in the opera. <laughs> I'm like, I have this friend. She's an opera singer. She's a paid opera singer. Have you met her? Her name's Anna. Do you want to come over? She's coming over. You can meet her. Anyways, <laughs> it's like, okay, Megan, nobody asked. But I just like need them to know. So that was kind of my last holdout as far as mission trips went. And so... She just had like an absolutely insane experience, which I'm not going to relate because it's not my experience and I don't want to, yeah, talk for someone else. But her experience when she told it to me, that really made me go, you know, I don't know that there's anything that's good here worth saving anymore. Even when we send a highly paid professional, like trained professional to do a highly specific thing. I think mission organizations are just still set up to kind of chew people up and spit them out. And white missionaries from the West are set up to be in a position of privilege and power. And so it's just never going to be, it's never going to be organic and it's never going to be beneficial for both parties. It's like, I don't know. (laughs) My next question is, is there ever a context in which you think missionary work is a good thing? Trying to be a bigger person here. (laughs) Um, yes, but only in the way of like you explained with yourself, 
of how you came back and it made you like look around yeah i'd be like wait a second wait that is the good that i think can come from it yeah but that seems absolutely horrible to go through all of that just to have that outcome yeah you just google it yeah (laughs) the same outcome watch a youtube video like i don't know it yeah it seems awful to put ourselves into these other people's lives and force this stuff and they're so nice like out of all the people i've ever talked to that have done mission work is the people that they're interacting with daily and trying to change the lives of are so kind and so welcoming and they just put up with us <laughs> yeah and i'm like these people are better at being a christian than i am what exactly. am I what's going on i don't understand so yes in context mission work the good thing is hopefully the eye-opening when you get back yeah i still there's like still a small vestige of me that is like i'm not willing to say that all missionary work is evil i just think it's like very very rarely that any missionary work could be um, construed in a positive way so i just think that the power structures that sort of undergird missionary work are too problematic to endorse it wholesale. I would be more likely, if I had to financially support an organization, I would be more likely to support either a local organization where I can like see what they're doing. Yeah. I know where the money's going. Like I can Google the director <laughs> to like know that they're not a piece of shit. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Or I would also support something like the ACLU, the American Civil Le- Ci- American Civil Liberties Union. Like they do, like the ACLU does a ton of great work. I would support them if I was going to support anyone. <laughs> but there, there are mission organizations that I would be open to Googling them to see how they operate, to see if I would support them. So one of these is the Exodus Road. So Exodus Road, you know, it's, Christian-based because Exodus is <laughs> Ryan the title. Um, but it's an organization of, like, police officers and detectives and stuff who know what they're doing when it comes to extracting minors who have been sex trafficked. Mm, okay. So I'm like, yes, here is something that I would be open to possibly. Yeah. I think they, like, they have rescued people. They have done there are KPIs. Like, <laughs> I'm a KPI girl when it comes down to it, I guess. Well, and I think the difference there is the end goal. The yeah. end goal is to, like, restore liberation. And, yeah. That's great. Yeah. I feel like so often with missionary work, the end goal is make Christians. Yeah. And then completely abandon them. Yeah. Here you go. See you later. Like, <laughs> in no heaven. Yeah. <laughs> See you when I get there. So I think it's possible for it to be a good thing if we're sending specifically trained people to do a specific job. But very often, whatever job it is can already be done by the people that live there. Yeah. I don't think the answer is just send any socially awkward weirdo with enough money out. We'll see what happens out there. I'm just like, miss me with that. Plus, a lot of mission organizations are just like mini cults. Yeah. Like YWAM, for example. YWAM is a cult, 100%. (laughs) Plus, I just inherently distrust 99% of mission organizations financially. So as soon as someone is like, 
this is a really good organization to support. The first thing I do is I Google how much the CEO is making. Mm. I'm like, how much are you taking home, yeah. bitch? I think and the answer is always, they're taking much. way more home than they should be. Yeah. If they're like a nonprofit, why are they making so much goddamn money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I think a lot of it is like, there's a white guy somewhere. He's sitting in an ivory tower and he's just exploiting and benefiting off of other people's pain and oppression. And like, why would I support something like that? Yeah. What are your thoughts about missionary work as a vehicle for foreign aid? No. <laughs> it's a no from me. It's just a no. It's a no. Well, I think it, we just fall back into the same thing of what is the core? What is the root? What are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? So if like in that case that you were saying with uh, Exodus, right? Exodus, right. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's a very specific thing, rescuing, like, restoring people's lives. Like, that, yeah. But, I don't know. I think it's just, I get, I put a wall up as soon as it's a religious thing. Yeah. It's just helping with basic human thing. Yeah. Because I can't trust that there isn't a different motive. Yeah, that's my thing too. I'm far more likely to support a non-religious organization because I'm always like, but why are you doing it? Yeah. <laughs> and so I do find that missionary orgs, they kind of like give the foreign aid in exchange for some sort of like emotional obligation. Ugh, it's so gross. And it's not good. So I do think there are a lot of missionary orgs that have done a lot of good as far as foreign aid goes, mm -hmm. but it often comes at a price and it often comes attached to white saviorism and like, we'll give you this foreign aid in exchange for you listening to this sermon about Jesus. And then it leads to the people that they're contributing to, to feeling emotionally obligated to pretend that they think is Jesus is a good idea, even if they don't actually think that. Yeah. So it's just, it's never, it's not set up to be a fair transaction. And so I prefer to support organizations that are not religious in nature, because I think the chances of corruption and arrogance are significantly less. Yeah. In those ways. I agree. So on the question of foreign aid, does Canada and the United States and Britain, China, whatever. So do you think that we have a responsibility to provide foreign aid to struggling countries or countries in the middle of political conflict, i.e. Palestine? Oh, oh, hot button topic. Yeah. That's a hot <laughs> mic, fellas. <laughs> oh, that's so tricky. A responsibility. My viewpoint is we have a responsibility as humans to take care of humans. Yeah, but it gets super tricky when it's political stuff. And I don't know to this day <laughs> where I stand in that. I do think we should help, but like, but then, how? Exactly. But how? <laughs> but how? And is it actually benefiting them? Is it benefiting us? Like, what is it doing, I guess? Yeah. And I feel like none of us are good at answering this. And anytime somebody gets involved, it just gets worse. So, yeah, I don't have I that. I do answer. feel that way, too. I'm like, but how are we going to do it? I think we just we need more education <laughs> before we attempt anything. So I do think that like we do have a responsibility to like a address human rights violations when we see them. Yeah. 
So like the UN. Yes. I, for yeah. example, I'm like, yes, I support the UN. Because the UN is like, uh-uh, naughty. Don't. Uh-uh, 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 uh-uh. And I'm like, I just do think the world needs that sort of like yes. check and balance. Otherwise, I think people are just going to go nuts out there. I mean, they are. But... And they do. And <laughs> they do. But I think we do need like kind of like a moral police officer in the world. Yeah. I don't know why I think that, but that is how because I feel. Because we're children. Because we are children. <laughs> And B, I think we have orchestrated a global system in which foreign aid is required for countries to get by. It's sort of this like mm. capitalist context. So I think I just also have this philosophy, which you talked about. And I think on my part, it is it is religious because of the divine image thing. But where if I see someone struggling or someone who needs help, I'm not just going to like keep on walking. Okay, see you later. <laughs> yeah. Like the worldview that we're all connected so that one person's hurt and oppression is everyone's hurt and or oppression. But I also think that America, maybe more so than Canada, sticks its nose in things that like are maybe not their business. <laughs> and yeah. it does do more harm than help sometimes. For example, in the Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, Biden provided like weapons and military funding to Israel and I was like I'm gonna have to throw all my Kamala Harris clothing now because of this <laughs> you didn't even think about me when you did that did you <laughs> can we maybe be more assertive in calling for a ceasefire than like providing military assistance like it doesn't make sense yeah to me that that would be the way that we would go I just don't always know what I do think that there is a responsibility but I don't know how to, I don't know if I have, I don't, I don't have enough education to know how we should be going about it. No, I agree. And I think there a lot of people that are making the decisions also don't have that education. <laughs> and we're just making a lot that's, of mistakes. That's the troubling thing. I'm like, I feel like we just all need to go to a classroom <laughs> together, please. Just Someone, one day. Anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. So next week, we're going to talk with Tracy. So yeah, we're going to talk to them about our experiences with Teen Missions International. And it's going to be very funny and very enlightening. And I'm really excited about it. So thanks for listening. Make sure that you rate and thumbs up our podcast. And we're also on YouTube. Check out our Instagram at... What is it? Showbiz Pod. Showbiz Pod. And yeah, let us know if you've been on mission trips. We would love to hear from you. And if you've ever been caught in a missionary position, well, <laughs> that's, that's showbiz, <laughs> baby. <laughs> oh, I'm crying. Wow.